Hello everybody and welcome to JTV. Today we are joined by Rabbi Mendel Kalmanson. You probably don't need me to tell you which organization he works for. Um, rabbi Kalmanson is the rabbi of Chabad Belgravia in London and he is the author of several books um, which provide profound Jewish wisdom for living and I'm very pleased to say that I have his latest book here that I've started reading uh, on my Shabbat afternoons called Positivity Bias. That's the name of the book. It's a fairly small book and it, it ain't, well the premise is really about the fact that a lot of us actually have a negativity bias in life, especially when life starts to go a little bit a wobbly or not as planned um, and we start to assume the worst or in fact think that the most that the worst outcome is the most probable. Um, and I think part of the book's argument is that that in some ways, that kind of thinking is, is irrational. Um, and it's really kind of looking at this issue of anxiety. The fact that many of us go around anxious, worried about what could be. And I am particularly interested to look at this, not just from a general living perspective, but also from a Jewish perspective. I'll never forget um, the time that I went into a uh, non-Jewish um, chiropractor that was looking at my, uh, there was an issue with my arms several years ago, and um, the, uh, the, the, I had to take off my shirt and the chiropractor said to me, oh, I see you're wearing sitsit, which is obviously a, a Jewish uh, religious garment. And I said, oh, do you have, do you have other Jewish clients? And the chiropractor said, yeah, absolutely. And I don't know what came over me. And I just asked out of curiosity. So, so what would you say is like a general um, Jewish trait that you tend to see among your Jewish clients? And the chiropractor said, oh, you guys all worry so much. <laughs> and I want to look at this question also of Jewish angst and Jewish anxiety, because this is also coming at things from a Jewish perspective. So first of all, Rabbi uh, Mendel Kamerson, thank you so much for taking the time to join us for your debut uh, on JTV. Oh, thank you so much, Ali. It's a real pleasure and privilege to be here with you. And uh, you do incredible work and I'm so honored and uh, humbled to participate in this uh, session. And please God, in future times, collaborate further. I mean, absolutely. Well, um, let's just jump right in. And I wanna ask you straight up, what prompted you to write this book? Wow, um, the, I guess the first question, let's start at the beginning. So the truth be told, I came at this particular theme in a very specific way. Uh, growing up in a Chabad yeshiva system, I was very taken by a particular work of the Rebbe's called the Kutei Sichot, which is the, the Rebbe's commentary on Torah, essentially. And with time, I began to notice a particular pattern a theme emerging time and again. And this pertains specifically to characters, to episodes, to events in Jewish history that for thousands of years have been interpreted negatively um, and catastrophically, really. And time and again, I began to notice uh, a particular, almost radical, redemptive and counterintuitive perspective on these very characters, events, episodes, and fiascos. Um, in almost all of those instances, I began to discern a thread of what we refer to in the book as a positivity bias. So here's an interesting line. People tend to judge others by their actions and themselves by their intentions. And I began to notice that the Rebbe was actually evaluating these characters 
and these collective moments of Jewish history by intention, not just by action. And it's precisely in that realization and through that lens that we begin to discover such a rich, multi-layered world, the real world, I would actually call it, because the world of action is sometimes one-dimensional, but the inner world of intention, motivation, as we now know through psychoanalysis, uh, what you might call a Jewish invention, is so complex and so multifaceted. And this insistence on seeing the inner point of goodness and godliness is something that I realized was an absolute premise of the Rebbe's Torah, as I would put it. So as a yeshiva student, this intrigued me, and I began to collect sources to put together in a book specifically focused on the Rebbe's Torah. Um, I think the, the title is the title of one of the chapters. Uh, the title of the book I was going to write would be, I think, Sinful uh, Saints and Virtuous Villains or something like that. Uh, and then as time wore on, I, and I began to research the Rebbe a little more exhaustively in the sense of trying to understand his leadership model, his personal encounters with so many, um, his, his perspective on human well-being, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I began to see that this positivity bias was not just something directed at a academic exercise, you might say, in Torah, but rather was something all-pervasive, all-encompassing. And that was the impetus to writing this particular book. And I, and I will say that on a personal note, uh, I feel like we live in a time, an era or age of cynicism. You know, every era has its particular challenge, let's just say. Um, I think ours is the era or the age of cynicism. I think many, many people today receive their news by way of satire, the various different talk shows, which basically, uh, you know, are, are basically their, their, their mediums for the dissemination and the proliferation of sarcasm and cynicism, making light, tearing apart, poking fun and holes at everything. And I think that has had a dramatic effect on young people today. I think that today people consider sarcasm or cynicism to be witty and sophisticated, whereas naivete or a certain sense of positivity, optimism, and trust to be somewhat backwards, primitive, and outdated or unrealistic, as so many people would say. And in, especially in that landscape, I think, I was so taken by this tremendous Torah scholar, legendary Torah scholar, the Rebbe in his lifetime, uh, hundreds of volumes were published and there are many more that have not yet been published based on his writings, devotes his intellectual creativity and ingenuity very often at the very opposite, determining and defining for us spiritual sophistication as the very opposite of seeing the negative of seeing the ill intention and rather to the contrary, seeing the positive and seeing the hopeful and seeing that inner point of goodness, goodness and godliness. Absolutely. And I really want to go in the second half of this interview to, to go far deeper into the whole uh, matter of the way we approach Judaism and Jewish matters through this lens that you say that the Rebbe embodies. And, and I actually totally agree. I think it's actually a great way of summarizing the Rebbe's approach um, his, his worldview, really. Um, and, you know, one thing I'd want to know is why, why is it only later in history that we seem to have this as like a, you know, a, a paradigm that, that, that's emerging. Um, but t speaking generally about this issue of being, feeling positively displaced towards how we uh, perceive events in the world, in our own lives, understanding Judaism, um, many people feel uh, especially if they've already experienced bad things happening to them in their lives, or if they look at the world, you know, look at how the terrible things that, that God could permit to happen. 
Um, they say life has potential for so much pain, so it's not even reasonable to be biased or predisposed towards uh, positive uh, outcomes or positive, um, you know, hopes or aspirations. What, what, what would you say to that? So actually, I would say that it's precisely because life has the potential for so much pain that it's not only reasonable, but it's essential to develop uh, a positive advice. Let me explain. Let me unpack that for a moment. Research shows that actually people have a positive outlook life. They tend to handle, they tend to um, basically transcend or transform challenges, pain and suffering much better than those who do not. For example, I mean, here's a, a nice line that Shimon Perez would say, which is that both pessimists and optimists die the same deaths, but they live very different lives. But I would actually beg to differ based on research that I read up in the BBC. Um, optimists actually tend to die different deaths as well. Let me explain what I mean. Um, according to that research, optimists or people with a positive outlook tend to live between 11 and 15% longer than their pessimistic peers, which I think is a radical, radical statistic. Um, and uh, for example, if I were to publicize tomorrow that I have a pill that if you take, you can actually live between 11 and 15% longer, uh, you can all imagine I would be an instant, instant international sensation. And that pill would be the most successful product to come to market because of course, we're so focused on living longer. But here's the interesting thing. Positivity doesn't just add life to our years. It literally adds years to our life as well. And that's a really important point. And why that's the case, there's so many different uh, contributing factors to this particular point. But let me start with just one, for example. Um, immune system. Our immune system does better when we're more positive, when we decrease our stress and anxiety. Mental health. There's research that shows that actually the brain declines at a slower rate, the more positive we are, including uh, conditions like dementia and Alzheimer's. For example, the longest running ongoing social experiment is one run out of Harvard. And they have found that the single greatest contributor to longevity is the strength of our friendships, the strength of our relationships. And if I were to simplify the key success to a good, healthy, strong relationships, I would put them down to things like positivity, to optimism, to trusting outlooks on life and people. Because as we all know, we don't really particularly enjoy spending time with people who are always bitter, always negative, always thinking the worst about themselves, others, and reality. They're not fun to be around. We do not like spending time with people who are not trusting, who are always projecting or suggesting negative intention or motivation behind the good things other people do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if that's the case, one of the greatest relationship building and friendship strengthening exercise we can do is increasing our own positive outlook. Because we all know that we love spending time around people who are positive because that lifts us and that makes the encounters that much more pleasant and meaningful. And so there are so many different ways to approach this, but the simple, simple answer to your question is that precisely because life is full of so much challenge and strife and struggle, that one should endeavor to develop a more positive outlook. Because today, this is no longer just a spiritual teaching. The science has caught up, so to speak, because today we can actually measure so much of the brain in real time, through neuroscience, etc. And now we know how physiological, emotional, psychological, and mental health is so deeply embedded, enmeshed, and intertwined and reinforced through one's mindset, especially of a positive biased nature.
it, it is fascinating that positive mindset can impact uh, the body uh, and one's uh, you know experiences in such a such a uh, positive way. Um, but my question was more about how reasonable it is, rational is, to expect more positive outcomes to be more on the side of uh, optimism. And what, what would you say to someone that say, look, I'm not denying that it's better, more healthy for me to have a positive expectations, but how can I justify that internally, that that bias towards positivity? And also they might add, you know, isn't it better for my, for my mental well-being to just not necessarily expect uh, negative, but just to lessen my expectations massively for life in general? Excellent question. And there's actually two questions there. I want to separate them because I want to address each one individually. The first question, if I understood you correctly, was for a rational thinking individual, someone who has critical, who's a critical thinker, um, you know, you tell them that it's a better for you, it's more efficient, and it's more beneficiary to develop this positive outlook. And their response might be, yeah, but it's simply not a true way of looking at people or the world around me. And I'm not willing to sacrifice my intellectual integrity for some placebo effect, potentially beneficial way of thinking that's not accurate or reflective of reality. Or, or, or they'd say it just, I can't allow it to soothe me or to help me because I can't believe it. So, so here we have to talk about a very important point. Um, let's, talk, let's talk about reality. Let's talk about truth for a moment. I actually think that we live in a time where, uh, due to the dissemination of information, information highway, internet, social media, whatever it might be, we are exposed quantitatively and qualitatively to, to so much more um, danger, risk, negativity, et cetera, than, is, uh, uh, than, than would be an accurate portrayal of reality as it is. So let me give you one simple statistic that might shed light on this. How many planes, Ollie, do you think landed safely uh, last year? Well, not last year, pre-COVID, excuse me, because during COVID, numbers are different. But pre-COVID, how many planes do you think landed safely on, on average every year? In a single year? Oh, gosh. Um, hundreds of thousands. 140 million planes landed safely. Wow. And yet if you stop your average person and ask them about planes and fly, flight and safety, they, they, what they would know or what they would be thinking of or what they would have in the forefront of their mind potentially are the few planes that didn't make it. And if you ask them, is, is, is flight travel getting better or worse, they might tell you it's getting worse because of those few instances where planes went down or went missing, et cetera, as, as was so, so disproportionately in relation to reality um, um, reported by the media. So I'm not here to suggest that the media is here to distort our perception of reality intentionally and maliciously, God forbid. But I am here to say that as a consequence of the way in which news is reported, we are walking away from 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 those news items or those news focuses with a distorted perception of reality and that distortion is negative rather than positive and so in that respect just as one example and i think this could be so this is so true for so many different areas to do with violence to do with racism and so many others and interestingly and this is probably maybe a little more provocative and controversial we can come back to it later even when it comes to anti-semitism it creates inside our own minds a certain um, almost, um, you know, a magnified, amplified it, and in some instances, distorted perception of reality. And so in this case, as in many, what is real? What is the truth? And I, I would argue that actually the truth of reality, and by, by the way, today, there's a lot of science to back this up, and I want to give your 
viewers a few uh, books to read on this. You have Hans Rosling wrote a book called Factfulness. There's a Swedish um, um, professor out of, um, uh, well, his name is Joanne Norberg. He wrote a book called Progress. You have a book by Stephen Pinker, who I had the privilege of interviewing a year ago on this topic, for specifically or when COVID was, uh, was, 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 was quite imminent and, and at the forefront of everyone's immediate thoughts and plans about whether his views on the world progressing still remained in check. And he wrote a book called Enlightenment Now. And these are just a few of many, many books that form a particular way of school of thought in the scientific community. And I want to stress, these are scientists. These are, these are people who are not coming from a spiritual religious point of view. Many of them are agnostic or even militantly atheist. And yet what they all converge on is a certain perspective. And that perspective is that actually we are living in incredible times. We are living in unprecedented times, right? And truly unprecedented because we use the word unprecedented very glibly. But in fact, we are living in unprecedentedly good times. And they basically measure the world and human progress in so many areas like education, tolerance, physical health, longevity, etc. And by all accounts, when it comes to the axiomatic main fundamental issues relating to human and uh, universal well-being, we are living in truly unique times, and that is accelerating at a tremendous pace. So I, I, I don't know if we have the time to go into some of the data, but the point is simply to say that when you study the world, not through media, not through the news, because of course, as we know, if it bleeds, it leads, which is why we're so exposed to so much bleeding, if we are to peel back the layers of that particular prism, and I would even argue prison, we will be able to see truth as it is, reality as it is, and we live in an incredible time in an incredible world. And interestingly, if you stop people and you actually poll them, you ask them, do you think we are living in a world that is better than the world our parents lived in? In other words, is there a forward march to history or, excuse me, are we regressing? <clears throat> So I believe they did this uh, study in the UK and they found that only 6% of society feel that the world is progressive. In America, which is far more optimistic, I think the number was 7% of society thinks that the world is progressing. And this is why I raised this, because when you talk about what's real and what's true, it's important to follow the data. It's fascinating that we call ourselves data-driven, uh, right? And we're data-obsessed, um, except when it comes to the bigger kinds of life, which is when we formulate our views based on intuition and based on news, et cetera. The reality is if you follow the data when it comes to the major uh, barometers of progress, we are living in unprecedentedly positive times. So to the cynic, to the person who says, I, 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 I must be intellectually honest about things, I would respond precisely, therefore, follow the data. Um, I, I was speaking specifically about more global or collective issues, not on the personal level, Ali, I, I appreciate that. But I think that that's a, a, a foundational idea that can, that can actually translate into various different fields. And let me give you one other example, which is very, very often, and this is something the Rebbe taught in a relational context, we evaluate people by their behavior. And so if they let us down enough times, we define them at this point as someone who is not trustworthy, who's not loyal, whatever it may be. The reality is that one of the most important aspects of positivity bias is relational. And it teaches that there is a fundamental point of goodness and godliness, as we said before. And if you can tap into that, and if you can set that as the default way in which you view others, and if you can approach each and every encounter in this moment, meaning to say, not carrying with you the luggage or the baggage of all previous encounters, and in this moment, see them in positive light, you will discover a different individual. 
In other words, so often the way we enter an interaction is the way we emerge from that interaction. And if we enter it cynically, we will find that cynicism. We will find that point of disappointment because we will actually, in a certain sense, bring it out in the other. And one very final point on this is I think that if we change the way we look at people, the people we look at can change. And that is something I, I, I would not, I would not uh, make light of because sometimes it's so precisely in the relational context where we write people up and we say, listen, here's what it is. I know them. They are who they are. They cannot change. And you know what? Yes, perhaps they cannot change, but you can change your perspective on them. And if you do it in an authentic way, and when you interact with them, you approach them more gently and compassionately, and you do try for a moment to really understand where they're coming from, you will discover a different individual at times and a different interaction. Yeah, and I think, I think from watching all the encounters that the, uh, the Rebbe had with individuals, he, he embodied that. He saw their potential and they came out transformed from their meetings. So do you think that we are living in more a more anxious time than in previous generations? And if so, what do you think is the reason for that? I mean, I know you mentioned the media and what we're exposed to. Do you think there are any other contributing factors? Um, that's a good question. Uh, yes. Um, look, I think, again, first of all, just to reiterate, we are exposed to more fear and catastrophe than we, than we ever were to the internet and social media. So literally every moment a catastrophe or a, or a disaster takes place anywhere in the world, that becomes headline. So, you know, we're more exposed to it at a more regular pace. And also, I think there's another point, which is that you know, the pace of acceleration in all areas of life and progress today is not measured and steady. It's actually exponential. I mean, literally pick an area and you'll find exponential acceleration. Even in an AI, artificial intelligence, um, we, we are finding that there, there is a, uh, the, the development and results of AI today are far exceeding the expectations we've had for where it might be today. And this is true of so many different industries in so many different areas of human endeavor and of human interest. And so the combination of very real change taking place at such a fast pace and the fear of potential change and disruption is constantly growing and growing. And so I think we live in a very, very complex reality where once again, we are living, we are, we are, we are exposed to so much more um, news, there's so much more information, and particularly of a negative nature and kind. Um, and then on the social level, I think there's another point to introduce, which is um, discontent. So here I want to focus for a moment on social media, but I must stress that, of course, the, the Hasidic approach to everything in life is that it's fundamentally neutral and can be used for positive and negative. I mean, we can all agree social media has incredible power to transform the world for the good. Uh, at the same time, Hashem created balance in the world and everything that has huge potential in the positive was created and designed in a way that can also be harnessed for the negative. And so just take for a moment a simple scenario. You're sitting with friends at a restaurant, you're having a great time. And then you make the mistake of looking at your Instagram or your Facebook. And what do you see? You see that 20 minutes away, some of your friends who are not present are at a different restaurant and they're having the time of their life and they're posting about the food and they're posting about their laughs and whatever it might be. Suddenly, an experience that was so positive and so joyful, so healing, so soothing, so uplifting was transformed into a moment of great anxiety and distress. 
Why? Because somewhere in the back of your mind, you're asking yourself, well, why wasn't I invited to that event, to that lunch? What does that mean about my relationship with those individuals? <clears throat> Wait, maybe the, the two weeks ago when she didn't respond to my text or my email, what does that really say? And suddenly we're in our head and in our head, we're, we're freaking out, right? We're, we're starting to come up with scenarios and with possibilities that by and large, and I say this based on our own experiences, are borne out to be simply untrue, right? So often the worst case scenario that we envision, let alone doesn't happen, but with the negative intention that we applied or the negative um, breakdown of relationship we assumed might have been is simply untrue. And so all of that started from a simple device in our hand that we made the mistake of looking at while we were experiencing a moment of bliss. So on a social level, there's a lot of more anxiety around validation, around acceptance. There's a lot of more insecurity. And that's only further exacerbated by the fact that you have all of these wonderful platforms where people curate, Photoshop, earbrush their lives and present the very best rather than the real, the raw, and the ugly, which creates for us a distortion of the lives everyone else lives. And then when we measure ourselves by, by those um, beautiful facades, we look at our own life with great discontent and anxiety. We look at other people's relationships, they look so picture perfect, and we say, oh my, I'm in big trouble. And that's not actually accurate. Again, we go back to the point about what's real and what's true. So much of that distorts our perception of what is real and what is true, and definitely contributes to anxiety levels that are off the charts. So those are just a few different factors that I think contribute to the heightened sense of anxiety in which we live. One is, is external, that is to say we're exposed to the accelerated pace of change in the world around us, and that brings on the fear of terrible disruption. And really, unfortunately, I have to also mention that the language of politics, the discourse is, 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 is particularly um, toxic and pernicious and very much, uh, in very many cases, <clears throat> fear-based and divisive, et cetera. And so that only further engenders and reinforces the notion of civil war, for example, you know, like, and that there were, we're at each other's necks and that there's a, and, 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 and tr the tribalism and the entrenchment of particular dogmatic views, <clears throat> excuse me, is only exacerbated, <clears throat> which only induces further levels of anxiety on the collective social communal level. Then you talk on the personal level. And again, there you have the, 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 uh, you know, this great line that envy is the thief of joy. And basically we've created so many new ways in which other people's joys and other people's perceived or sometimes falsified, fabricated uh, fairy tales bombard us every single moment. And that uh, raises our anxiety levels. I mean, I don't need to tell you um, or your viewers. I mean, there's a lot of data today about how, for example, and I'm not beating up on Facebook, but, but people's happiness levels actually go down with every session, uh, with every time that they access Facebook. Um, Facebook is also, uh, as an app. Unless, unless they're watching JTV. <laughs> okay. Like I said, um, Facebook is an amazing, amazing, amazing tool. But for many, many people, we, you know, what we see initially or immediately are this, are, is what I'm describing here, um, yeah. is the very best of other people's lives, which makes us look at our own lives in a very, I think uh, the sometimes discontent manner. And that's unfortunately creates anxiety because we begin to question ourselves and our relationships. And we begin to question our, our own state of well-being, even though from an objective point of view, we have so much, we are in such an incredible place. Uh, yeah. But because we see, again, all of that, it, it creates in us a certain sense 
of discontent and anxiety. So, so give our viewers a bit of a, a flavor of, uh, of the book. Can you give us some, some, some of the practical, um, some of your favorite practical tips from the book to help achieve a more positive, more positivity uh, bias in, in general life? Um, yeah, definitely. So I, I, when I was choosing the subtitle of the book, I, I, you know, actually, you'd be surprised, but probably the most difficult thing in writing a book is choosing the title and the subtitle, because you really want to try and encapsulate the premise of the book in just a few words. And in the subtitle, I use the word practical wisdom for positive living. And those two words don't often come together. You know, wisdom we associate with some type of esoteric, you know, otherworldly, uh, ethereal uh, perspective. But in fact, what's so great about this particular curriculum of thought, which of course is not my own, I, I, I'm just truly blessed and honored to, to, to facilitate and to birth and to, to disseminate through this medium, um, is the fact that the wisdom is practical. And that's what is, was actually so heartwarming um, when it comes to the feedback that I've received. Because as you can imagine, when you write a book, you have literally no idea how it will be received, by whom, how well it will sell, you know, what type of you know, impact it will have. Um, but I, but I've, I've been absolutely, really and truly surprised, pleasantly surprised by the, by the impact because people talk about this wisdom that comes from, um, you know, classic Judaism, Hasidic wisdom, the Rebbe's embodiment uh, and teachings as being transformative. And so just a few of the examples, let's start with, for example, Lashon Tov, which is what we, what we translate in the book as positive language. So many of your viewers will be familiar with Lashon Hara, which is, you know, when we speak, when one speaks ill of another person, even if, or especially when it's true, if it's not true, it falls into a different category of prohibition. And, and very often we tend to think that the way to counteract or the way to, uh, the antidote to Lashon Hara, to negative speech about others, is the absence of speech, is silence. And there are many, many different campaigns uh, relating to, you know, um, stopping Lashon Hara, so stop for an hour a day or a week or 24 hours, whatever it might be, all very important and wonderful initiatives. <clears throat> I think the Rebbe's approach was to take it a step further. The, the opposite of Lashon <clears throat> Hara is not the absence of Lashon Hara, it's Lashon Tov, which means seeking out to turn every interaction into a point of uplift for the people involved, specifically the people you are interacting with and speaking to. So I bring many, many examples of how every encounter the Rebbe had with individuals from all walks of life, men, women, and children, young and old, from all nationalities, men, most of whom were Jewish, but quite a few who weren't, the Rebbe made a point and found a way to turn that into both a meaningful encounter and a positive encounter. And they're not necessarily the same, but they are very often overlapped. The Rebbe would find something unique about that individual and highlight that power, highlight that gift, highlight his or her contribution, passion, hobby, interest, and turn it into something that they could take with them and that would form their purpose, their mission, their sense of, of focus. So here's a challenge to, to all your viewers, I, I'd say. Over the course of the next week, right, choose three occasions, three interactions or more in which to make a point of creatively employing your intellect, your creativity, and finding something uplifting and positive <clears throat> to say to the person with whom you're interacting. Okay? It could be a taxi driver if you're taking a cab from point A to point B. It could be a child, it could be your spouse, it could be your partner, it could be your friend, it could be your parent, it could be someone on the street, no matter whom. 
find a way to say something meaningfully positive to them. So not something generic or general, because those are less effective, but really take the time to craft a meaningful compliment or meaningful empowerment, because a compliment is not necessarily an empowerment. They are related again, but not necessarily the same thing. A compliment, you, you tell someone <clears throat> or, a, or a gratitude, you might be thanking them for something they did. Whereas an empowerment very often is highlighting a strength that they have and, and, and framing it in a way that inspires them, motivates them to utilize it for the better of mankind. I, I, I would propose that if you achieve this, if you can do this three times a day, at least for a week or two weeks, I think that you will find that your happiness levels increase to some extent. And the reason for that is because it will make the person you're interacting with feel great and it will make you feel great because you've made them feel great. And it's that energetic exchange that is uplifted and deepened, expanded, elevated, that I believe has tremendous, tremendous power. So it's not the big stuff necessarily. We're not talking about global sweeping change or changing your life around in one moment. Those are not the ways to change, to make real change, lasting change. I think it's the small stuff. It's changing our speaking patterns. Um, and the same as with thought patterns. <clears throat> I'll give you one other example. I think one of the things many people struggle with <clears throat> is negative self-talk. I think that's one of, one of the great challenges of our time. I think in previous generations, there were people who judged us. But very often, when the voices of judgment were too strong, we simply turned them down or tuned them out. We walked out of the room if it was the person speaking down to us, for example. Or we, we were able to <clears throat> figuratively put on earphones so we were not listening to it anymore. The problem is that today those voices of judgment, unfortunately, are not external but internal. We've internalized them and so that today, very often, our greatest critics <clears throat> are the voices inside our own heads. And the problem with those voices is that you can't shut them off at will, at random. They're there and they continue. And they keep chipping away at your sense of empowerment and confidence and your self-image. You know, there's an amazing story in the book Positivity Advice where someone comes to the Rebbe and he begins to engage in negative self-talk. And the Rebbe says something fascinating. And the Rebbe says, I've yet to find a source in Jewish law that permits speaking Lashon Hara about oneself. And it's an interesting thing because, you know, here's a very basic principle that I would share. You know, if it's not something you would ever say, say to someone else, don't say it to yourself. So, for example, you're at the dinner table. If you have a guest and they spill the wine or they spill the water, okay, would you get up and rage and scream at them and say, oh, you're such a klutz. You're so clumsy. There you go again. You would never do that in decent company. And yet, oftentimes, we find it okay to tell ourselves or to scream at ourselves or to enrage against ourselves in much the same way. How often do we find ourselves saying, oh, I'm such an idiot. Or, I'm so stupid. I'm so lazy. Fill in the blank. Every person struggles with a different area of development. And that becomes the point of self-focus and self-judgment. And it corrodes and it slowly but surely shifts our own self-perception, which is terrible. It's debilitating. And it's simply untrue to talk about the truth of who we are and our capabilities. And, the, the, you know, in this respect, I think we might say, not love your neighbor like yourself, love yourself like your neighbor. What you wouldn't do unto another, don't do unto yourself. Um, and, and the same sometimes happens internally when it comes to our emotions, right? We have an impious thought. We have an impure thought. We have an immoral thought. And that's only natural. That just means you're human. And that, and that thought comes knocking at your door. So yes, you have the choice to accept it, to embrace it, to celebrate it, or to denigrate it, to push it away. <clears throat> but very often we become upset ourselves for even, even experiencing those, type, those particular um, uh, appetites or those particular attachments 
or those particular natural impulses and instincts. And we call ourselves, or we beat up on ourselves, or we define ourselves as X, Y, or Z. All of that stuff has no place from a positivity bias point of view. In other words, the very same way we are encouraged to find the point of goodness and godliness in others, we must attempt to do the same in ourselves. So a practical challenge would be to cut out negative self-talk. One interesting way to do that is to take a little notepad or use your phone and open up a page in notes and begin to record the amount of times you engage in negative self-talk. You will find if you actually measure it that you might be doing it a great deal. And if that's the case, make a point of challenging yourself for a week or two to stop. <clears throat> and it's the self-awareness and it's the consciousness that you're doing it that will contribute to its, its um, cessation. And hopefully that will create an internal space of calm, peace, gen gentility, and compassion. And I think what I'm sharing with you is not new. It's not radical. Today, so much of the self-help world talks about self-love, talks about self-compassion. And that, I believe, is another positivity bias practical takeaway. So we've spoken a bit about um, our relationship with others and how this impacts that, and also one's relationship with themselves. But I also want to talk about our relationship with God and spirituality. Um, and certainly the, the book is very Jewish focused. Um, I think a negativity bias can be tremendously uh, damaging to one's relationship with with God and spirituality. And I, I would say that there's some elements of the religious world um, that I think, I, you know, impacted my relationship with God negatively, or it's something that I'm not ungrateful for it because I think it's helped me to mature and understand what is a right way and an inappropriate way to relate to God. One of the things that I think is so beautiful about Hasidus and certainly um, the Rebbe's way of saying things is that it actually re-understands Torah and, and characters within Torah and, and, and episodes in Torah in a far more positive um, way. And I used to think when I'd hear that, oh, that's, you know, it's very cute, that's very nice. But actually now, as I've gotten older and, and understood these uh, perspectives more deeply, I actually think they're touching into far deeper realities and they're actually much truer. Um, so I wondered if you could speak about how uh, I mean, for, exa for example, um, uh, I I've watched a lot of uh, Rabbi Manus Friedman's uh, content where he talks about issues like Adam and Eve and uh, the flood and all these kind of issues from in a far more um, compassionate way. And I think it really helps us relate to God because when we stop, stop judging others so harshly and feeling like there's such heavy judgment, we're able to... And, I think one of the th important things to recognize is the fact if, if we can be forgiving to others and compassionate, surely God can with us, if not infinitely more so. And it's so much more healthy. So um, the question I want to ask is how, how has negativity bias affected our relationship with Judaism? Where do we go wrong? How can we correct this? And one other thing to throw into this, why is, is you know, the Rebbe's approach and the Hasidus approach, is it, is it something that only why is it something that came so late in history, <laughs> really, is my question. Wow, excellent questions and beautiful. I, I really appreciate what you shared about the way in which over time you, you began to see those deeper uh, redemptive interpretations as actually more accurate. And that takes into account the holistic approach, which is not one dimensional, but multifaceted and multidimensional. Um, but you actually asked a number of questions. So let me try to unpack them. Um, I'd like to approach it from the collective historical point of view and then from the individual point of view <clears throat> as well. 
Let's talk about something that's very much um, in the news, very much on the forefront of Jewish consciousness, especially today. I mean, I grew up in the 90s, which I would say was the golden era in the sense that I don't think uh, anti-Semitism was a, was a palpable present reality. In fact, uh, Alan Dershowitz wrote a book called The Vanishing American Jew. And in his introduction, he writes that there were two greatest threats to Jewish people has been historically anti-Semitism and assimilation. And he writes that anti-Semitism is thankfully a thing of the past, which is why we need to focus on the second and real or imminent threat, which is assimilation. And I find that very interesting in terms of a historical insight into that time. During that time, anti-Semitism wasn't a very real threat in the lives of many Jewish people living in open societies. Today, that reality has changed for a variety of reasons, which we won't go into. The point of the matter is when it comes to formulating Jewish identity, I think the Rebbe's approach was radical, was redemptive from the times after the Shoah uh, and throughout. And it's actually something that Rabbi Sachs of Blessed Memory pointed out that he wrote about very often. Uh, I'd actually like to quote some of his words. In his own words, Rabbi Sachs says, I've read many works of post-Holocaust Jewish theology, and they all ask the same question. They ask, what unites us, the Jewish people, today with all of our divisiveness and arguments? And in them, I read the same answer. What unites us as Jewish people today is memories of the Holocaust, fears of anti-Semitism. What unites us as a people is that other people hate us. The Rebbe taught the opposite message. What unites us, he taught, is not that other people don't like us, but that God loves us. That every one of us is a fragment of the divine presence, and that together we are the physical presence of God on earth. Surely that message, spiritual, mystical as it is, is so much more powerful and so much more noble than the alternatives. And what I find very penetrating about that particular point is that it's true about the Rebbe's teachings. You see, the Rebbe, in a certain sense, attempted to shift the central point of national Jewish focus and self-identification away from the colossal tragedy of the Holocaust and directed instead towards a redemptive future and a joyful present. Of course, there wasn't, God forbid, devaluing or trivializing such historical loss. God forbid. He was only working to ensure that it not come to exclusively define and, I would argue, confine the way that Jewish people view their past and their present and their future. And this is something really powerfully relevant today. Uh, put simply, I think the Rebbe's approach to anti-Semitism was not anti-anti-Semitism, but was pro-Semitism. There is a famous saying by um, you know, a liberal public intellectual who said that anti-Semitism is bad for the Jews, but it's good for Judaism. The Rebbe disagreed. He said, anti-Semitism is not good for Judaism. Judaism is good for Judaism. And so I think when it comes to thinking deeply about how to define Jewish identity for ourselves, for our children, for our communities, and more importantly, how to shift that victim narrative, that persecution narrative, both that pain and suffering of the past and that fear and anxiety for the present and future into a more joyful, optimistic Judaism, I think that is something that is absolutely essential um, on so many different levels. And that's something that, especially as anti-Semitism rises again, unfortunately, we need to be cognizant of. Because the fact of the matter is that if we raise children whose Jewish identities are dependent on anti-Semitism or the hatred of others, we have given them a, a superficial Judaism, a negative association to Judaism. And the fact of the matter is 
we have robbed them of the real gift and treasure that is Jewish tradition and heritage. That's more in broader sense. When it comes to the personal, so I think Hasidus in general and um, in the Rebbe's teachings in particular have shifted the focus from what you might call a judgmental Judaism. And by judgmental Judaism, I don't just mean Jews judging others, but I mean Jews judging themselves, as you brought up, as you touched on earlier, to a more positive and loving Judaism, a more compassionate, a more understanding Judaism, a more empowering Judaism. And it shifted the relationship between a Jew and Hashem from a place of, you know, harsh judgment and uh, and 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 rule and a certain sense of like trembling fear. Yeah, fear and conditionalism. I think conditionalism is how I put it, which means, oh, I must earn Hashem's love. I must be deserving of God's acceptance. And we've 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 sort of we, we look. We do live only in a, in a in a very judgmental world, which only exacerbates the judgmentalism around us. Um, we're so quick to give to cancel the whole idea of cancel culture, which today is extreme. Started off from a more subtle point of view, where if someone does something wrong once. They, their career or their contribution, their legacy is tarnished, is over. And it's so fascinating because the modern world prides itself on being so progressive and tolerant and has become so intolerant in many respects, especially when it comes to human failing. Okay, And here's where we need to draw on the redemptive teachings of Judaism, of course, in the classical sense, teshuva, but if unpacked more internally with a whole different soundtrack, a soundtrack that is much more compassionate, more loving. And I think that's something that Hasidus at large really, really made a big deal of. And it shifted the pendulum, you know, <clears throat> and, and it's, about, it's about creating that perfect balance of, of, of love and awe, right? And by the way, fear of Hashem in Hasidus is translated as awe. So in simple terms, the way I put it to people is, are you afraid of your spouse or are you afraid for your spouse? And there's a huge difference between the two. If you're afraid of your spouse, um, you're in actually a very unhealthy relationship. But if you're afraid for your spouse, which means that if you're afraid of doing something that would violate or undermine or undercut your relationship because you're afraid of how that will impact your spouse and the pain they will experience and their anguish, then you're in a beautifully loving relationship. And in that respect, your fear of doing something that would harm the relationship is born out of love. And so I wouldn't even classify it as true fear, or at least the historical classical definition of fear, which is fear of punishment or retribution. And so even fear of Hashem is today infused and embedded and really um, um, founded upon a, a bedrock of love. That's really, really important, which brings me to the final point. And there is a chapter in the book about this, Asay um, Tov and Surmeira, which is, of course, has been a very classic debate among Jewish, public, uh, Jewish thinkers. From times uh, uh, and uh, from, from from ancient times till today, and the basic idea is: say you decide that's it, enough is enough. I want to become my best version. I want to become more spiritually refined and developed. I want to be more morally attuned. I want to live a purpose-centered life. Okay, I'm ready. What do I do? So. There are two different approaches. One is the approach of what was historically known as the Musar movement, which basically said it's then important to be, to take that magnifying glass and to put it on all of your character flaws and perfections and slowly but surely make your way through them while trying to uproot them. And it could be a lifetime journey. And by the way, a journey where you do not achieve full success ever because 
that is a, it's a very arduous and oftentimes Herculean task. Uh, that's one approach. The approach basically suggests <clears throat> that before you look to increase in light, so to speak, you must first banish and eradicate your inner, inner darkness. The uh, Balshemto's approach um, is, is radically different. It suggests that actually the, 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 the first thing you should focus on is engaging in light, in goodness, in kindness, in spirituality, in elevation. And in so doing, you will be elevated to a plane of existence where the darkness matters less, is less manifest, is less palpable. This is, of course, one of the great questions of self-development. How do I progress? Do I first remove all the negativity or do I put it aside and engage in a life that's completely and utterly focused on positivity? And the Chabad approach and the positivity bias approach leans towards Asay Tov. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that one shouldn't be dealing with the bigger Surmeira issues. Of course, we're not talking here about living, uh, living a life of compartmentalization where you know, sometimes you're engaged in terrible stuff and other times in good stuff. That's not what we're saying. And we're not saying that all the good stuff you do uh, discounts or somehow redeems all the negative stuff that we're involved in. And that's not what we're saying at all. We're saying that on the behavioral level, ensure that you're, you're, you're in line with Torah and mitzvah. Okay. But beyond that, when you talk about your inner world, your world of intention, motivation, your world of, of emotion, your world of instinct and impulse, in that realm, don't, be, don't obsess over all of the character flaws that you have. Instead, utilize all of your energies and your talents and your abilities to, to, to bring greater well-being, spiritual life, material success to those around you. Um, let me give you a little bit of a, let me, you know, if we talk about it from a psychological point of view, experience life in, in the flow, in the moment. What do we mean by that? So... <clears throat> There's a fascinating story in the Talmud of a great sage who just before passing away, his students asked him, you know, what are you experiencing? And he, and he actually was, he was actually crying or he was very upset. And he said, I'm actually terrified. And he said, why? He says, I do not know which way they will take me in the next world. Meaning, will they take me to Gehinnom? Will they take me to the purgatory? Will they take me to, to, to Gan Eden? Um, you know, to the Olam And his students were obviously shocked. Uh, and, and, and it's an obvious question each one of us can ask. This was a Talmudic sage. He was, he was completely pious. He had lived all his life doing only good, only kindness, etc. So how could he even entertain the notion that he might be taken in the opposite direction? And the Rebbe once spoke about this, and he answered something actually very deep. He said, Rabbi Yochanan, actually, in his lifetime, never stopped to evaluate his inner world. He was so focused on doing the right thing, on doing goodness, on spreading positivity, on teaching Torah, on Avat Yisrael, and so forth. He was so focused living in such a meaningful and positive way that he never took the time out to sort of do an internal audit and to ask himself, yes, but have I completely refined myself to my core? Which is why moments before passing, he was terrified because it is at that moment that he felt it's time to do a self-reckoning and he didn't feel like he had necessarily that he had the, the he didn't 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 think at the time that maybe he was on the deepest of levels completely aligned with his outer positive behavior so i share that with you because you know sometimes you know let's say you know we have physical needs we're hungry tired all of the above but sometimes when you're engaged in something so meaningful and so powerful and so historic or epic 
you you you're not you're not hungry during that week or during that month when you're so connected or attached to a particular project. You're less hungry. You sleep less. You're less petty, right? You're more transcendent. All the silly things that usually matter don't matter anymore because you're living on a higher plane of existence, right? That is probably the best metaphor I can give towards asetov. Very often, when you lift yourself to that higher plane, the the lower appetites, the base impulses, no longer are no are no longer as vocal, because you've you've shifted your mental and existential and spiritual location to a higher dimension of existence. Right, and and it's it's interesting you mentioned earlier that teshuva, uh, repentance, should be seen not through or, or fear should not be fear of, but fear for. I think that's so true, and I think one of the problems that's happened today, when we talk about negativity bias and and an unhealthy relationship with Judaism or with God, I think, ironically, it stems from what many in the religious world think is a very beautiful idea, which is that God created the world for you. And when you say it's just for you, it means I can't do anything for him, or he has no feeling about what I do, it's just all for me. So that means that everything you're doing is just about serving one's own self and it becomes, in, it, it becomes exceedingly focused on, I've got to refine myself as much as possible, almost like a game. And it ends up being no relationship with God because it only, it's only for me, it's not about him. Um, and, and actually ends up becoming very self-focused ironically. And I think the, one of the things that's really helped shift my uh, uh, relationship uh, with spirituality is 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 understanding that no 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 that this is a relationship of doing something for uh, you know for for God's world and for Him and it's actually ironically a very toxic idea in my view to say it's entirely for your benefit. One hundred percent. I know actually Rabbi Freeman speaks about this theme a lot about God needing us as it were about us partnering with Hashem and I think. We sometimes say these things in, in poetic ways that we look at them in more abstract terms, but if we genuinely and authentically internalize those ideas, suddenly every detail of life, every moment of life, takes on a whole new level of urgency and importance. Um, because I, I, am, I can actually achieve something that contributes to the cosmos, to Hashem, to the universe, to humanity, and so forth. Right, but it's but it's not about what the, you know. It's le it's much less about what what it's gonna how it's gonna impact me. It's more about what I can do for him. So it's very it's it's an urgency, but it's outward focused. Excellent point, and I, that's also very much a theme in positivity bias, um, because again, today we have a lot a lot of data that that actually living a self focused life. Um, even if it's a privileged one, or sometimes especially when it's privileged, actually decreases our happiness levels and gives us a, a certain sense of inner angst. <clears throat> and, and actually there's a lot of research about pro-social giving, that actually when we give, when we spend our, our, for example, our resources, our time, energy, or money on others, it actually contributes to our well-being in greater ways than when we spend it on ourselves. So maybe you're familiar with a famous, uh, a famous exercise done by uh, Professor Dunn, um, and, and many others who have replicated this, where they gave uh, two groups of people, control groups, um, $20 to spend in one group on themselves, another group on others. And when they came back, they measured their happiness levels, were, which were relatively the same. But they then did something interesting. They called them back the next week or something like that. And then a week later, they found that those who had spent on themselves, their happiness levels had returned to base level, whereas those who had spent on others, they had maintained those heightened happiness levels. So what we're learning today, and I find this to be a really important point, there's today greater in, a greater 
intersectionality or overlap or meeting of minds, as it were, between Jewish wisdom and social science. So many of the things that Judaism has been teaching, like gratitude and like kindness, etc., are today demonstrated in very science, social scientific terms to be greater points of well-being for the individual. So leading an other-centered life, a life of service to others, ironically, actually contributes to our own well-being. But it's critical to point out that we don't do, we don't serve others for its, uh, for its uh, positive a positive effect on us, it's a byproduct rather than the motivation. And what was the, what, what's the message behind this story you shared earlier about the rabbi on his deathbed? Are you saying it's a good thing that he was, he, you're saying he was only trembling now because he was so preoccupied with serving and you're saying that's a... Exactly. So, but, so what's, the, what's the message? Is, is the message that he should have spent more time? No, actually, actually, I'm so happy you went back to that. The point was, all of that in, when does he, introspection on some level, at some, if done in a, in a, in too often, or in an un, unhealthy way, <clears throat> can actually be detrimental rather than positive. All of that then comes, it comes to exactly your point about the world is created for me. If, if a, a person can lead a very spiritual life, but yet they could be, the more spiritual they become, the more arrogant and egocentric they become, ironically. Or, or let's use the word religious or punctilious when it comes to religious matters. I, I don't want to use the terms, sometimes they're used interchangeably. The point is, a person can sometimes become even more self-centered through a spiritual religious journey than less self-centered. Uh, and that's, I would, I would argue, not genuine spirituality or genuine religion. And what I say by that is, I, I, I want to be very careful here. By, by genuine, I mean it's all legally, technically, 100% accurate and right and correct. And on a behavioral level, they're advancing, no doubt. But if all of that is self-serving, then they're missing the very point of existence of creation itself. We are not here to serve ourselves. We are here to serve Hashem, first and foremost. And Hashem asks of us to serve our families, to serve our communities. And so, of course, Hashem says, look after yourself. Because in so doing, you will be the best version of yourself. And by being the best version of yourself, you will be best positioned to elevate and to illuminate your families, your communities, and your surroundings. But the question is, what is the means and what is the end? And, and that's a very critical question. Because for some people, yes, they serve others, but that is the, that is the means towards self-fulfillment. So the others are really a platform upon which they achieve self-actualization. That is, and that, and that is antithetical to the fundamental teachings of Hasidus. In the fundamental teachings of Hasidus, we have the opposite approach. The opposite approach says, yes, of course I need to look after myself. I think it was Rav Tzadik who said, I, I, you cannot learn to love Hashem until you learn to love yourself first. Of course you need to have self-love, but that self-love should serve as the foundation that allows you to love others and to love Hashem in a healthy and in a genuine manner. So it, it almost switches the means in the end is the critical question here. So Rab, the Rabbi Yochanan spent his whole life of ser serving others, the world, serving Hashem, and so forth. His own spiritual standing, um, in, other, in terms of as, as a self-focus, was not something that was on his mind. And in that respect, we look at that as an ideal, as something to aspire to. When, you know... Well, I was just going to add, I think also the biggest, the biggest slam dunk as to why we shouldn't be focused on our on getting to heaven or our reward in the next world it's because actually we don't say that heaven is eternal we believe that we're all going to be resuscitated on earth and the earth will be eternal and we'll continue the, the finite will continue meeting the infinite and we'll continue serving forever so actually 
it's the, 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 the greatest heaven, heavenly reward we are given is the ability to continue serving God. Exactly. Very, yes, exactly. And look, I think, again, there's a lot, a lot of research today about how, you know, I think even if you put it down to Viktor Frankl, Viktor Frankl talked about the pursuit of happiness. And he said that actually, you know, you can't pursue happiness. Happiness ensues and is a byproduct of leading a life of meaning and purpose and service. And I think, in other words, even on the selfish level, we are deeply benefited when we make our lives about others. But that is, shouldn't be the motivation again. It should be a byproduct. The motivation should be, I am here to serve Hashem. And when we look at our lives as, 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 as uh, possessing the, the power to, to achieve real impact and to bring this world and history one step closer to the, fin to the finish line, I think life takes on a greater sense, like I said, of, of urgency and preciousness. And it's here I think that is very interesting because the, the, the critics of religion often, um, you know, often accuse religion of being a system that strips uh, humanity from its sense of agency and power um, and free will. You know, everything is prescripted, everything is restricted, all of that. But I think actually the deeper you go into the teachings, uh, the spiritual teachings of Judaism, you actually find that the human being is empowered with greater, in, in, in much greater degrees than, than, than not. In other words, our impact is seen to be vast and is seen to be every moment counts, every action counts, right? And that's the story of the Torah, where we learn about the actions of those who came before us and how they changed the course of history. Um, and not only do they impact our world, Kabbalah says, our actions impact the higher world. I mean, that's a radical idea. That little me, I can have a major impact, not just on my, my own life, on those around me, on the world at large, but also on the higher realms, the cosmos itself, and even God himself, as it were. So I think the spiritual teachings of Judaism turn up the degree of empowerment and teach us just how effective we can be as instruments uh, for divine love and light. Okay, so Rabbi, this has been a fantastic interview. Again, the book is called Positivity Bias. Just before we finish, um, I wondered if you might be able to share with us uh, one of your favorite short stories from from this book? Um, yes, I mean, there's a lot of, obviously, a lot of stories touch me. I tried to include all of them in the book. And in fact, one of the greatest challenges was not what to include in the book, what, what, what to leave out because we were, we were limited in, in size. But one of my favorite stories <clears throat> is a story, um, is, a sto is the following story. The, in the earlier years, the Rebbe founded an organization to counter attempts by Christian missionaries and certain religious cults who were attempting to recruit Jews very aggressively. And Derba started this organization anonymously because he wanted to attract support from Orthodox communities outside of Chabad. Now, the Rebbe's role became known at some point, <clears throat> and one of the organization's leading rabbis removed his name, and he started his own organization with exactly the same objectives. And it ended up leaching support and donations from the original group. Now, the original organization's manager was a non-Lubavitch Hasid. He was appalled by this other great rabbi's, what he perceived to be politically motivated action. And in fact, he confronted him at some point and he said, why did you do this? And that rabbi said, I didn't. 
I didn't, uh, <clears throat> I just didn't want to be involved in machloket and disagreement and disunity, and therefore I removed myself from this entire effort. Now, unfortunately, that, that wasn't entirely true. And the uh, leader and the previous manager of the organization had written evidence in hand to the contrary. Very frustrated, <clears throat> very disillusioned, that manager, who, as I mentioned, was not a Chabad Hasidic, so he, he asked to see the Rebbe. And in a private audience with the Rebbe, he, began, he became very emotional. He was very upset. And he asked the Rebbe, how could this in this rabbi put politics before principles? How can he do this? How can he engage in such <clears throat> deceptive and, 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 and politically motivated behavior? And the Rebbe grew serious, and he responded by citing a Talmudic discussion which <clears throat> disqualifies a king and a Kohen Gadol, a high priest, from serving as a judge when it comes to establishing a leap year. Why are these two individuals, who some would consider literally the greatest of the great among the Jewish people, the high priests, considered the most elevated of the elevated, the holiest of the holy, and the king, of course, also would have had to, been, had to have been someone very, very, very elevated. Why were these two individuals disqualified from participating in the process of establishing a leap year. And the answer given is that the king has a vested interest in whether a year has 12 months or 13 months because he pays the soldiers' wages by the year, which means that the treasury would gain when a year has 13 months. Similarly, listen to this. The Kohen Gadol has a vested interest because he has to go to Mikvan Yom Kippur five times. And therefore... He might be partial to a calendar that places the day of Yom Kippur during warmer weather. <laughs> By the way, we're not talking here about the difference between a cold and a hot mikvah. We're talking about a difference of a, of a very few degrees in a mikvah. And yet, the Talmud says, for this reason, the Kohen Adol, again, as mentioned, considered the holiest of the holy, is disqualified from serving, <clears throat> from, 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 uh, from affecting whether or not the year is a leap year or not. And the Rebbe concluded this particular reflection by saying, such is human nature. We are all prone to subconscious calculations of self-interest. Whether we know it or not, even a Jewish king, even a high priest. And then the Rebbe reminded this manager that the, Rebbe, the rabbi that he was judging for his conduct before World War II, before the Holocaust, had been the leader of a very large community in a yeshiva in Europe. And all of that had been wiped out completely during the Holocaust. And now he had moved to the New World, to, the, to New York. And he was trying to establish a yeshiva, for which he was dependent on certain donors who were ideologically opposed to Lubavitch. This is all he has, the Rebbe said. Can you blame him for wanting to ensure the success of his important work and his life legacy at all costs? I find this story very moving. And the reason for this is because here the Rebbe was faced with the account of a rabbinic leader who was engaging in politics against him and against an effort that was so important when he should have been modeling integrity. And the Rebbe didn't just put a positive spin on the rabbi's tactics, that he was trying to protect the remnant of his community. The Rebbe acknowledged the rabbi's status by citing the Talmudic discussion relating to figures in the most honored positions, a Jewish king and a high priest, a Kohen Gadol. And the reason I share this story with you is because I think that it's often easier, at least, if not easy, to judge people favorably when we have a positive relationship with them already 
or we have a neutral relationship with them. But what happens if we're engaging with someone with someone with whom we have a negative relationship? Or let's be specific, with someone who actively, directly sought to undermine something noble that we were endeavoring to contribute. And by the way, I want to stress again, this was not an organization affiliated with the Rebbe or Chabad, which means to say this wasn't an organizational, reputational legacy issue at all. This was such a pure initiative. It was an initiative where the Rebbe felt it was so important that any type of affiliation should be removed for its success. And yet precisely in this particular organization and in, this, in, 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 in relation to this initiative, here was an individual who lowered himself and acted in a way that left much to be desired and actively undermined the Rebbe's efforts. It was in this case that I share this story because I think it's here that we learn most. Because very often it is most difficult to practice dan lekafschus, favorable judgment, and a, a more positive outlook, and a more gentle and a more generous outlook when it comes to the people who we perceive to be out there to and undermine more, and more true and more true outlook. Exactly, very key word over there. Exactly right, because because the Rebbe wasn't wasn't engaging in what. Let me just share one more point because I think it's relevant. You know, we, we know that Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Kabardichev was a very famous Hasidic master who engaged in Limut Schut, which is the, the articulated act of creative, favorable judgment. So we know the story of the individual who, who uh, we, we, know, we know the story of the individual who, <clears throat> who was smoking on Shabbos and Rabbi Levi Yitzchak told him, surely you must not know that smoking on Shabbat is prohibited. And he says, Rabbi, I actually very well know that smoking on Shabbat is prohibited. He said, then surely you must know, you must not know that today is Shabbos. He says, Rabbi, I can assure you that I know that today is Shabbos. At which point, Rabbi Levi turned his eyes heavenward and said, God Almighty, look at your children. They are simply unwilling to tell a lie. So it's a very beautiful story. It's a charming story. Um, and not, not to undermine the story in any which way, God forbid. In this story, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak is ignoring, is choosing not to look at something which is negative and instead to look at something which is positive. But I think something unique about the positivity bias that I include in the book is, is slightly different in the sense that the Rebbe looks at the very thing that we would perceive as negative and peels back its outer, more superficial layers and reaches its truest core. And that's, I say this in response to your comment about true because I think it's a very important point that you make, Ali. When you go deeper, very often you find, as you peel back the layers, that inner point of goodness and godliness. And if we can operate from that vantage point, I believe our, in, our, our actions, our reactions, and our interactions with all around us will be elevated, and we will generate a positive cycle of redemptive uh, generosity of spirit, and we will really, I think, have the power to shape and to change the quality of our lives and the lives of the people we touch. Well, Rabbi Kamelson, this was a real pleasure, this uh, hour discussion. Um, the book's called Positivity Bias. I really think just your general messages, um, the messages that, you know, stem from teachings of the Rebbe and the Chassidus are so timely. The importance of looking at our relationships with others, with ourselves and with Torah through a positive uh, mindset. I, I'm, as, as time goes on, and as I have more experiences and interactions with uh, people and uh, look at different ways of uh, approaching uh, religion, and this is talking about all kinds of religions as well, 
um, I just think I, I, I feel very strongly about this. I think that this way of viewing, viewing things is, as I say, not just healthy um, and uh, better, but also that key word is truer. Um, so Rabbi, thank you so much. And I'm, I'm sure that we'll be having you on again very soon. It's a real pleasure to spend time with you. And Ali, if I can give you a compliment, um, <clears throat> I think, you know, <clears throat> Uh, the, the, the role of an interviewer is very difficult oftentimes, right? Um, but I, I, I think you've obviously, you, you, you're, the way you listen and your, the questions you ask are so perceptive and your observations are so, um, they, they actually elevate the conversation. And I want to thank you for being such a, a wonderful, wonderful listener and interviewer. And I think that that is to your great credit and also to the great benefit of all of your viewers. And just to bless you with trem continued tremendous success at spreading the light and the joy of our heritage to so many, to so many who are affiliated and so many who are unaffiliated. And in so doing, really, I think serving as a light to our nation and to all nations. Thank you so much, Ali. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.